Uh, well, we, we've um, officially, as far as I'm concerned, finished the book of Acts. Um, I know you're waiting for Acts 28, but Paul goes to Rome. Uh, he's put on trial, and they wait for his accusers to arrive from Jerusalem, and they never do, and Paul's acquitted. And that's the end of the story. Any questions? Then he's, uh, he's released. Obviously, he spent some time there in prison, but it's, uh, it's 61 to 63 AD. He's living in Rome, and then in 63 AD, he's acquitted uh, of the charges placed against him. And then he does his final missionary journey, but we don't know much about it, uh, and it's from 63 to 67 AD. We know he goes to Crete because he said that in Titus, and the likelihood is he wanted to go to Spain, and he may have even made it as far as Great Britain, we know he goes to Nicopolis, um, that's in Titus 3.12, um, but we find out in Romans 15.22 to 28 that he always wanted to fulfill that goal of preaching in Spain. He may have done it, we don't know. Um, uh, in, um, in July 14th of 64 AD, Nero burns Rome, it'd be like burning Washington DC or burning Los Angeles. Uh, Nero, the emperor, burns Rome, and then he blames it on the Christians, and then massive persecution happens to the Christians uh, starting from 64 AD, and in 67 AD, Paul's thrown back into prison in Rome, uh, and that's where he writes his last two epistles, uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and then in 68 AD, um, tradition says that he was beheaded. He was martyred around May or June of 68 AD. Um, and that's really kind of the conclusion of the book of Acts. But it, it continues on, and um, I'm going to pick up in our study of the book of Acts, just following naturally what would be um, an, another direction um, on the same vessel. And I want to read this to you about um, somebody who Paul had met and, um, and what had happened to him. I'm not going to use his name, but before I go through that, I want... The, the book we're going to pick up and study, uh, I've listened to a couple of authors share about the book, and I'm very disappointed, quite frankly. Not, not that I have this angle on it, but I'm, I'm tiring of the evangelical community and its commentary of, of this uh, epistle, epistle means letter, of this letter we're going to be studying. Because as they, they teach this epistle, it's almost a defeatist mentality that America is not going to be around in the end. Um, God is more concerned with glorifying himself than he is with saving America. And, and, I, I, and I, I read it and I listen to them and I'm, I'm just quite frankly disappointed. It's, it's this place where they have no vision, no heart to see a transformation. It's almost as though they look at the horizon and they see it so overwhelming that they don't even want to attempt to try to reconcile it or, or, or save it or be used by God to save it. And I think that they dream too small. Uh, I, I will confess that one of my largest struggles is to continue to keep an optimistic view of what God can and will do in America. Um, I believe that the pulpits in America are slowly surrendering that vision. Um, and it's sad. It is. It's sad to me. Um, we, and I've gone through this in many studies, but we look at the federal elections being contentious and probably the most contentious in our lifetime, looking at the horizon, and we get, we get disheartened, and we get a little overwhelmed, and we get saddened. And I get it. 
But quite honestly, what's happening at the federal level, what's happening in politics across America is a result of, of 15 to 20 to 25 years of neglect from the source. That's downstream. What we're experiencing is something that occurred in the churches 25 years earlier. We're, we're, we've, we've shut off the source of putting good people into office and equipping them. Uh, as I've said often from the pulpit in 1954 with the Johnson Amendment, uh, churches just stopped addressing the political side of, of the civic world. And we do know that it's ordained by God. We know that the family is a government ordained by God. We know that the church is a government ordained by God. And we know that the civic government is a government ordained by God. We've done real well as a church in the family and in the church, but we've neglected our responsibility in the civic arena. And so what's downstream, what we're looking at is a mess. It's a mess. Good government happens with good people, and we don't encourage good people to get into government at local levels. Pastors don't even know, and we're going to see in this epistle, a call to praying for our, our leaders. And, and most pastors, and I did this today, I sat with the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventists, and they were asking me for help as a council member for their property over here where they want to put a Lowe's and a uh, LA Fitness or 24-hour LA Fitness. And they sat down, they, they said, look, we've been through all kinds of, we've owned this property for years, it's, it's put a, 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 a weight around our neck, we've gone through Costco, we had the opportunity of Sam's Club, now, and they're going on and on, they're talking. And, and I just, in the midst of it, I said, do you find it helpful that you have access to a council member, that a pastor of, of one of your congregations, the place which uses our facility, that prayed for me during the election, who is mindful to call me, that you're sitting across local government, having a conversation in relation to this, not in violation of the Brown Act or anything like that, but you're having a conversation. Do you find that helpful? They said, yes. I said, can you name for me the other four council members in our city? They had no idea. I said, well, where do you live? Uh, That maybe is not fair because you're not from the area. Two of them weren't from the area. I said, okay, could you tell me your council members in your area? I'll just pull them up on the phone. No idea. Can you tell me any school board members? No idea. Can you tell me your supervisors in your county? No idea. But yet you see the absolute need for something to work in favor to help the church you know, continue pre- presenting the gospel in our community, and this is detrimental to you, and you have no clue of your local government. Don't you find that strange? And yet the man that is probably the least in authority at this table is the one that put this together so we could have this conversation. And, and there was, just like it is now, there was silence. And, and I look at it, and I, I think this is the result of our apathy and, and our lack of dreaming. Uh, I, I pulled this up, historically speaking, uh, these famous predictions that underestimate the incredible power of vision. Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM in 1943, said, I think there is a market for maybe five computers in the world. I thought that was funnier. Ken Olson, president and founder of Digital uh, Equipment Corporation, said in 1977, there's no reason why anyone would want a computer in their home. Consider what Western Union memo from 1876 said, the the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. And this is the words of the DECA recording company when they turned down signing the Beatles in 1962. We don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. (laughs) Charles Duell, commissioner of the U.S. Office of Patents, said in 1899, everything that can be invented has been invented. They didn't have much vision. And I I say that because there's a young man who's struggling with vision. 
And he would be the iconic millennial of our day and age. His age fits right in this millennial generation. Disenfranchised, disillusioned, uh, self-focused, self-indulgent, self-everything. And, and Paul takes him under his wing. And this is what happened to this man. I want to read to you the end, and we'll start with the end in mind and go back to the beginning. This is the end of this person's life. After this person had visited Paul at Rome, he returned to Ephesus, where he continued to govern the church as its bishop, without the least interruption for considerable time, till at length he fell a victim to the malice of the pagans, who were his most inveterate enemies. These heathen made a great feast in the celebration of which they carried in procession the images of their idols, being all masked and armed with clubs and other offensive weapons. This person, seeing the procession, was so irritated at their idolatry and superstition that he rushed in among them in order to stop their proceedings, upon which they immediately fell upon him and with their clubs beat him so unmercifully a manner that he soon expired. They left the body on the spot where they had murdered him, which was removed thence by some of the disciples and decently interred on the top of a mountain at a small distance from the city. The Greeks commemorate his martyrdom on the 22nd of January, the day on which it is supposed he gave up his life in defense of the doctrine he had long labored to propagate, and during which time he had brought over great numbers of people to embrace the truth of the Christian religion. He was instrumental in bringing Christianity into Europe. And this, of course, is none other than Timothy. Timothy. The reason why I want to pick up with Timothy's life is because we found in our study in the book of Acts, in Acts 14, when Paul was at Lystra and Derbe. And you remember they went into the city and they all considered Paul to be Zeus and they considered Barnabas to be Hermes and they wanted to sacrifice a cow to them and worship them. And in this city of Lystra, uh, born in 30 AD, uh, and, and by the time Paul had gotten there, it was probably 48 AD. So this, this young man, Timothy, was 18 years old. And he watched as Paul comes into town and he had been led to the faith. His, his mother was a Jewish, Jewess. His father wasn't Jewish. He was a Greek. Paul would later go on to have Timothy circumcised so that he could minister in the synagogues. But Timothy uh, witnesses Paul in, in Lystra and also in Derby, where Paul stands in opposition to this idol worship and they beat the daylights out of him. They go from wanting to sacrifice a cow to him that they beat him and left him for dead. Paul comes to, he's left for dead. He comes to him, goes right back into the city to preach the gospel. And the person witnessing this the entire time is this 18-year-old. And he's, he's checking it out. And he's thinking, what motivates a man like this? Nothing stops him. What could be so compelling that he would give his life to it? As the apostle Paul would write in Acts, where he'd say, none of these things move me. I don't consider my life dear to myself. And, and Timothy would witness this. And I'll tell you what millennials need right now. They need examples of fearless men and women who really do believe the gospel is the hope for mankind. And they'll stop at nothing to make sure that that's established. They're looking at an older generation that's given up. I'm listening to minister after minister talk about this book, about the sovereignty of God and the power of God, and it's all about the gospel, and America's going by the wayside. And what they're basically saying to millennials is, you have no future, and this gospel we preach has no power to transform anything. It's all about salvation. Get people saved. And I've said this till I'm blue in the face. For over 50 years, we've been doing this at Calvary Chapel, since 1966. 
10,000% growth. And it's all conversion growth. It's not transfer growth. And what's happened to California, where we started in 1966, fifth greatest GDP in the world, uh, no abortion to speak of. It was the exception, not the rule. No divorce to speak of. It was a place where you came to do business. It was the land of the future. This is where it was happening. And we've been preaching the gospel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, watching people getting saved. But we've removed ourselves from this third realm of government. And what's occurred is we're now the eighth GDP. We have the highest debt, the highest taxes, the worst place in the country to do business, 47th in infrastructure, 47th in schooling. We lead the nation in abortion. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, no-fault divorce. This is what the legacy we've left because we don't do politics. We don't engage in this third realm of government, and we have no vision to give to millennials. And they look at the church, and it's fruitless. It's fruitless. How do you reach a millennial? I sat through an entire sermon on how to reach millennials, an entire Saturday, and and it was well-orchestrated, and a lot of work went into it. And they love you to be transparent and self-effacing and, you know, all the, look, I'll put couches and candles. I could care less, but give them a vision of the future. And there's no vision from the pulpit. I'm not saying I'm the only one. Please don't get me wrong. But I am discouraged by the people I look to for vision. And I wonder where it is. And I look at our church and I think this little fellowship has created vision. God has done an amazing work in this little church. And, and this 18-year-old this in Lystra watches a man get the tar beat out of him and go right back into the city. That's in Acts 14. Paul's so moved by Timothy. He's so moved by Timothy that he brings him on his third missionary journey and he starts to pour into his life. Paul spends three years in Ephesus pouring into the lives of the people from 53 AD to 57 AD, pouring into the lives of the believers in Ephesus. And he's, he's so touched by it that he, he, he gives a warning to the church and the church leaders in Miletus because he can't go back into Caesarea, and he, and, or excuse me, into Ephesus. And he, he calls the elders, they come down to Miletus, and he just tells them, wolves are going to come in, and, and it's going to be an awful time. Protect the church. He goes back to Jerusalem like we've been studying. There a riot breaks out. They accuse him. Uh, Paul declares himself to be a Roman. They send him to Rome. And that's where we, we finished off in Acts 27 and 28, where Paul ends up in Malta with the shipwreck that we studied. But what's fascinating is that uh, Paul is acquitted of this offense in 63 AD. He spent two years in a Roman prison waiting for the Jews to arrive from Jerusalem to put him on trial. They never did. They acquitted him. Paul got set free. And, and instead of living out his days in Rome and holding to his Roman citizenship, Paul goes back on his final missionary journey. We know he goes to Crete. There's a likelihood that he got to Nicopolis. He may have gotten to Spain. He may have gotten to Great Britain. But what happens is in 63 AD, when he's acquitted, 64 AD uh, is, is, is that awful time on July 19th of 64 AD where Nero burns Rome. And it is a wholesale slaughter, a wholesale slaughter on Christians. An entire nation turns to kill its Christians. So similar to what's happening in the 1040 window right now. And you want to talk about an absence of vision for a millennial. Everything that you hold dear in your citizenship and, and the world that you know is going to be gone. It's going to be ashes. Lord bless you. And you preach that gospel, brother. And Paul had put Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus. He says, you take it. And we're going to come to find out about Timothy that this guy's sickly. He's got stomach ailments. 
the stress of the ministry is affecting him. He's going through all kinds of struggles, and, and, and he's, he's, he's young. And, and what ends up happening is Paul's thrown back into prison in 67 AD, and that's where he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. These are the last two epistles he writes before he's beheaded. And he writes them to Timothy. And he loved Timothy, loved him deeply. We're going to find out how much he loved him. But what Paul does, which is fascinating, is Paul imparts to Timothy a vision, a vision. You know, I remember Ronald Reagan talking about a city on a hill, which was the founding vision of our founding fathers when they spoke of this shining city on a hill. And, and they wanted to establish this idea in the Puritan movement. And they wanted to go through all kinds of things. And it was founded with a vision. And the scripture says, for lack of a vision, the people perish. What is your vision for the future? What vision do you want to impart to the kids? I mean, we, we've, we've inherited the last vestige of, of economic freedom and capitalism. But we've, we've whittled away religious liberty and now we're sitting as a church that, that we're pietistic, meaning that we separate the secular from the holy, and we love to talk about the scriptures and the power of God and salvation, and we love to see people raise their hands, and we love to worship, and we love to feel good, but there's no transformative power to, to create a vision that sustains mankind in this third realm of government God's ordained. What vision have you given your children? How do we create citizens that will develop this? What, what, what are the building blocks of what we're called to do? How do we instill this in our children? The Bible says that that first form of government, which is the family in Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5 and 6, is that we raise them in the way that they should go, that when they're older, they won't depart thereof. We raise them as godly human beings so they're equipped to then go into that realm of government in the church where we look for godly men, husbands of one wife, not given to much wine, not filthy lucres, where they can rule accordingly and establish a moral basis in a community where we then move them into that third realm where we get good people to make good decisions that are biblically based. And as our founding fathers pointed out, these are natural laws. We hold these truths to be self-evident. This idea that the, it, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, it doesn't matter if you're Protestant, agnostic, or atheist. You throw a rock up, it comes down. That's gravity. We're bound by natural law. You do this, this is what happens. You don't do this, this is what happens. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people, right? When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people grumble. What more do you need to know? And where are the righteous rulers? Which one of you is running for office? Which one of you is endorsing and supporting a candidate? And which candidate is that, might I ask you? And some of you are getting tired of me asking the question, and you want to throw something at me. Good. Stone me if you must. But the idea is we have that opportunity to set that vision for this community in every level. And the decisions that those people, good people, make affect our children. And so what is the vision that you want to instill and give the hope to these millennials that are looking to you for that? What is it? Or is yours like, nah, I don't do politics. It, it all, it's all dirty. That's your vision? That's what you want to give the next generation? You just want to flush it and say, ah, oh, to hell with it. You just give up. We can't. We, we bloom where we're planted. We look and we say, God, what would you have us do? And when Paul writes his first letter to Timothy... He looks at a millennial 
who has been raised with a godly grandmother and a godly mother, an absent father figure. And this is a guy that struggled. And I'll tell you what, millennials struggle with a father figure because they've all checked out. That is one of the greatest detriments to, a, to the American home is the absence of a father. And they're looking to them for vision. They're looking to them for strength, protection, provision. They're looking to them and they've abandoned it because they're self-focused, self-guided. And they don't impart any vision. There's no protection. They, 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 don't, they can't even see beyond their, their own selfishness. And these millennials are looking to anyone to lead them. I am so blessed by our Boy Scout troop. We have godly men instilling vision in young men. And I look and I call it, I call it the, the den of the eagles. We have more young men coming into Eagle Scout rank. And I look at them and I'm thinking, man, we are, look at that, they're a catch. If I had daughters, I have three, but I'm talking younger. If I had younger daughters, I'd be going right there. Every one of those guys, just put a bullseye on them. Go girl, get him, get him. That's our job. And we can do that here. We do that in our culture, in our athletics. Instead of creating in our kids this opportunity to win at all costs and and to to decimate anyone else, why do we instill in them character? Where are the coaches? Where are the ones that support the booster club to support the coaches? Where are the soccer coaches and and the little league coaches? Where are you? And this is that idea that God has called us to instill in this generation to give a vision to millennials. And I can't think of a better epistle than what Paul wrote to Timothy. This is a millennial without a father. A millennial without a father and without a future. His government is on fire. And his religion is under persecution. And he's got a man who's this diminutive, tiny little rabbi whose face is probably so marred. But he's brilliant. He's studied to show himself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. He rightly divides the word of truth. He speaks multiple languages, has multiple doctor degrees. He's put it all on the line. Everywhere he's gone, there's a riot or a revival. This man has more vision in his little finger than the church has in its entirety in America today. And Timothy looks at him and says, I'm hooking my wagon on that guy. Where are we going? Be that. Be that for the women, ladies. Be that for the men, fellas. Be that. Set that vision. Set that picture. And and here, Paul brings Timothy under his wing and starts to instill in him everything he knows. For three years, as he's pouring into the church in Ephesus, he's pouring into Timothy. I love the quads in our church. I'm watching four guys pour into each other. The strength of, you're not in a quad, one question, one simple question, why? And I guarantee you, you don't have a good answer. And, and these quads are developing this core to pour into other lives and hold one another accountable and pursue a future with a vision attached to it. And, and here, this is what Paul's done to Timothy. And, he, and he's, he's going to write this epistle. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. A long intro. I hope you aren't too bored. Now, this is the very first time in any of Paul's writings where he uses this title. And you know, the reason why he uses this title is he's going to give this epistle, this letter that's going to be written on vellum, and you begin it by opening it up and you have to see who it's from because typically we get a letter, we read it, and it says, Love Rob, or Sincerely Rob, or Regards Rob, or Blessings Rob, and it's at the end because we have a flat piece of paper, we can see who wrote it. 
And typically we'll put the thing up at the upper left-hand corner if we mail it, right? But with the vellum, it's rolled. So you open it up, you want to see who it's from, if you want to read it. And then you want to see if it's worth reading. And so they begin with their title. They begin with the purpose of what the letter's about and, and why they're writing it and who's writing it so they see their significance to it. Not only that, this vellum, Timothy will carry for the entirety of his life because what he's going to say to anyone who challenges his age is a millennial. Anyone who's going to challenge his age is a millennial. And by the way, this is the 50s that Paul brought him under his wing. We know what happened in the 50s. It got weird. I'm talking 50s AD, not... That's just a little byproduct, tangent. But he's going to carry this as authority. You know, you know what significance and the joy I have to say I studied under Don McClure? Because anyone who knows Don McClure knows what I have received because they've witnessed his life. I'm no Don McClure, but I'll tell you, I am, I am honored to have had the privilege to serve under him. And, and to find somebody to, to hook my wagon to and to learn from, and, and you look for folks like that. You're being discipled and you're discipling. That's the call to the church. Who are you discipling? Don't answer that out loud. And who's discipling you? Don't answer that out loud. You can say me as a Sunday or Wednesday night, but personally, who are you accountable to? Who, who are you stepping into a relationship with like Paul did with Timothy? Who? Who? So Paul takes this letter and he gives a title and it's only for Timothy. And Timothy's holding on to a piece of paper that is going to rock the Christian world. Because when he walks in with this, this is like an autograph of Ronald Reagan himself. This is like an autograph of you just think of somebody big and that opens up the door. This is a letter of reference. It says Paul. And this is the first time he uses it in all of his writings. He says, an apostle. Stop for a minute. How many apostles were there? Twelve. What happened to one of them? Traitor hung himself, right? Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver Jesus, right? And then another took his place. They drew straws, right? I was talking with some uh, Mormon friends and they were talking about how they select the next president of the LDS and they do it by drawing straws. They take it right out of the scriptures. They just draw straws. There's, there's no favors. They don't pick anyone. Everyone who serves, they serve for a period of time and they're finished. None of them are paid positions. I look at them, I'm, I'm baffled. I'm watching that. I'm thinking, wow, these folks work hard. And, and so he calls himself an apostle. Now, does that mean that we have modern-day apostles, we get to carry on this title, and we get to give it to other people? No. There were 12. Paul was the one. Paul believes that the Lord gave it to him. It's the only time. And I believe that the thorn in the side, and this was given to me by a woman that I, I, a real sweet lady, she believed that, you know, some people thought Paul's thorn in his side was blindness or struggle. As she said, I believe that the thorn in Paul's side was the fact that none of the other apostles recognized him as an apostle. I, I thought that was fascinating. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's, here's the authority, by commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. I want to tell you why I'm an apostle. It's by a commandment. This isn't my doing. This was a commandment of none other than Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. Period. And he is our hope. And, and let's stop there for a minute. The first thing you want to give to a millennial is not false hope, not hope and change. As I said on Sunday, we've, we've, they took our hope and they've left us only with change. And, and 
and their disillusion. This is a hope that is unwavering. This is a hope that has spanned millennials, you know, thousands of years, millennia. He says, this is to Timothy. And look what he says. He says, a true son in the faith. By the way, the word son in the Greek, it's not like adopted. It's not like, you know, a spiritual son. You are my flesh and blood. I'm your dad. I'll take that role in your life, boy. Wouldn't it be neat if this fatherless generation could find men like Paul? And those men would be able to look to a guy like Timothy and say, I'll be your dad. We've got a thousand foster kids in the system right now. And I bet you there's room in your home for one of those kids. And they'd love to call you dad. It'll be the hardest job you've ever done. But I bet you there's room in your home. We've got a fatherless generation looking for dads. And wouldn't it be neat if one day you could turn to one of them and say, son, daughter. I I see no distinction between my four homegrown kids and my one grafted. They're all my kids. Natasha's my daughter. The joke in our family is Natasha was Michelle's longest delivery and largest baby. 12 years, 100 pounder. And she calls me dad. And guess what I call her? My daughter, my sweet girl. Where, where are the Pauls in the world? Because the Timothys need you. And not just a son, but a son in the faith. It's one thing to take water to a nation and build a well. That's great. And I don't despise that and it's necessary. It's another one to impart to them faith. Not a faith where you have a convert but a faith where you've created a disciple. That's the point of what what Paul says here in in the context of the verse. I have poured into you everything I know. You are my son in the exact faith that I carry. I've given it to you. Have you done that with your biological kids? And are you willing to do it with your non biological kids, the ones that you've yet to realize are yours? This is a heavy sermon. Probably everyone's waiting for me to finish so we can get out of here. I get it. Listen, to each man is given a measure of faith. And I know for some of you, this is way too much to be considering, especially with the struggles you're having in your own family. I get that. And I'm not here to heap upon you guilt and condemnation. The church is here for you and to minister to you in these struggles in your life. I get that. But there's also that opportunity to say, God, one day, if you strengthen us, would you consider me? All Michelle and I did when we realized we couldn't have any more kids is, is we just said, Lord, we're open to adoption. We didn't know the first thing about it. And it was, it was interesting to see how it came about. It was shocking. It was a roller coaster, fascinating. And, and we knew it was completely the Lord because there's no way we could have ever have orchestrated what occurred there. It was, it was nothing short of miraculous. I would just simply say this. If you, if you say, God, would you give me the faith to ask you to be a foster parent? I bet you he would. If you say, God, would, would you develop our home and make it such a place? And in the meantime, if you're struggling with parental skills... Latch on, find a Paul, find a Pauline, learn, grow from them. He says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. And usually Paul says grace and peace, which were they call the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Paul usually uses those. He says grace and peace. 
grace is, is uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, and you have to have the uh, peace with God before you can have the peace of God. And, and grace and peace go together. You can't have one without the other. If you have the peace, if you have peace with God, you have the peace of God, and that comes with grace. And, it, and it's a salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul always uses grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, Siamese twins. But in this epistle, not only does he add apostle, but he adds mercy. You know why he adds mercy? Because one thing millennials struggle with, I believe with all my heart, is failure. They've been raised in dysfunctional homes. They've put the fun in dysfunction. They have been raised in schools that do not acknowledge the Lord. They've ingested, they've injected, they have induced, they have done everything under the sun imaginable. And they're disillusioned and burned out. And they, can't, they, they have no idea how God would want anything to do with them. A fatherless guy like Timothy, whose nation has been burned to the dust, to the ground, whose father's not there and whose mother and grandmother probably have passed away and he's facing all kinds of struggle and he's under the pressure of overseeing a church as a bishop, as a young man, he's got stomach ailments. He's so overwhelmed and the one word that he needs to hear over and over and over again is God's mercy. Mercy. We all know what we've done and here's mercy. We don't get what we deserve. The penalty that you and I deserve for what we've done, he's not giving it to us. Instead, he's given us grace. You're on death row getting ready to die. The governor stays the execution and pardons you. And you're like, wow. And you take that bag that you came in with with your meager meager belongings and you walk out and there's a limousine. And the governor's saying, son, I've adopted you. You're going to come live with me at the governor's mansion. I got you some new clothes. You're like, are you, are you, are you kidding me? Is this candy camera? What are, we, what are we talking about here? No, no, no. I, I, you got a room there. You're going to come live with me. Mercy and grace. I'll tell you what, that, that'll give that young man peace. You forgive me? I do. And, and you want me in your family? I do. Do you realize that I come with all kinds of garbage and backgrounds and struggles and addictions? Yeah. And I love you and we'll work through it. That's what Paul did for Timothy. And as he lays this out, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And what he's saying is, let me tell you something, Timothy. I have no ability to raise you on my own. And I, and I told this to Natasha one time when she was really struggling. I said, Natasha, of the five kids in, in our family, four of them are aliens to me. I don't know their world. I don't get it. I can't even relate to their world. They have parents that prayed with them, read with them, took them to church, talked to them about godly things. They've lived a life of chastity before the Lord. They understand these aspects before God. They're committed. They, they hold them. And I said, and I look at you. I get you. The childhood I had is you. Now, granted, I wasn't, you know, left by my parents at an orphanage or with the grandmother. 
But there was an absence of the Lord and the indulgence and all those things and the failure and all that. I get you. I get all your thought processes and all the way you think and the way you, 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 you know, self-implode and, and things are going good and you just think, oh, this, this can't be good. I might as well just, you know, extinguish this one with some sort of ridiculous action because this is too good to be true and I might as well just do it myself before someone does it to me. Anyone have that kind of mentality? That's the millennials. That's the millennials. And, and, and Paul's looking at Timothy and saying, let me tell you something, buddy. The only way you and I are going to get through this father-son relationship is we're going to rely on God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And we're going to lack a lot of wisdom, but all we got to do is ask the Lord and he'll give it to us freely. And we got to keep together pressing in. As we press in, our relationship will get closer. As we both seek the Lord together, we're going to be closer as father and son. And if you're pursuing the Lord and I'm pursuing the Lord, there's going to be peace in our home because it's all going to come from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that right there is a healing for the millennials. Right there. Those first two verses. But then Paul also realizes that Timothy's losing vision. And Paul's in a prison in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy. He thinks, what can I do to encourage this guy? What can I do to encourage this guy? There's nothing more powerful than a note. I share with you about the significance of Ruth Sosowski in in my life in the 15 years I've been the pastor of this church. I got a little box with all of Ruth's writings. It's a little envelope, actually. Always a note on my birthday, an anniversary, and a note about a sermon and an encouragement. And she would take time to write, and they were thoughtful and insightful and, and blessed. I get those. Natasha's a writer. Molly's a writer. Um, some of the other kids a little bit. They're thoughtful. Um, and and <clears throat> the kids like to go through the, the notes and letters I wrote to Michelle. But it's amazing about notes and, and how they encourage you. And verse 3, Paul wants to encourage him and give him vision. So he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, I told you to remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He's saying, Timothy, you and I studied the Scriptures together for three years. I was in Ephesus. I told you to remain there. And, and you need to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Get away from the Gnosticism. Get away from the idea that Jesus wasn't real, that he isn't part of the triune Godhead, uh, the, the questioning of, of the authority of the scriptures and, and the notes that we've been writing and the authority we have as apostles. Stay true to this. And he says, nor allow them to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. They're proving themselves and all these folks, they would, uh, I'm from this camp and I'm from this camp. And Paul would say, you know, I'm from Apollos, I'm from Paul. You know, and, 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 and Paul would say that the gospel is being preached. I take hope in that. But, but what they're trying to do is justify their, their position. And really, that's what happens in the church. Man has this ability to make it about him. And, and, and they, they get their authority in these cultic mindsets by establishing these doctrines of their validity of, of what their genealogy and, and lineage is. And really, isn't this where we get monarchs and kings? What is a monarch? What is a king? Somebody who had papers. Well, how did they get the papers? They figured out how to write. Well, how did they figure out how to write? 
Well, they got together and they had a little bit of time because they were good fighters and they created walls and they said people study and they started to put together and they figured out that if we carry these, only people who are educated can read them and we'll keep the education out of the hands of others and we'll start to create this monarchy and we'll have this divine right where we can rule over the peasants who are uneducated and all these things. And all of a sudden the Reformation comes in, we start to teach people how to read and write and all of a sudden the lower classes start to rise and they start to get educated and we, we start to see this production and we start to see mankind realize their humanism and, and, and start to experience their their humanist you know abilities and and all these things start to take root in a culture and the culture begins to flourish and what he's saying is they're no different than you and me they're they're trying to prove themselves much more valid because of their genealogy and it's just endless it's endless genealogies it's fables and all it does is cause disputes it causes disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith you know the most amazing people that edify me and encourage me in the faith are the most humble. Tell me who in here doesn't like Marty Richter. I think of the people, I, I, I ran into um, um, John, uh, does our parking ministry, Marcinka. And uh, he comes in, he goes, man, I just love that sermon. He said it on, on Easter Sunday, second service. And I watched him out in the parking lot and he was doing the parking and then ran in to get the service, second service. He couldn't go to the first service because he had 22 kids in a Sunday school class. And he's telling me how blessed he was. And I'm looking at him going, you do this every Sunday. How exhausting. And you're telling me that you're blessed by me? I'm blessed by you. You edify me. You encourage me. This is the living gospel before my very eyes in service to the kingdom of God, pouring into the lives of young kids. And, and this is this idea of godly edification, which is in faith. They do this because of what Jesus has done for them, not in order to obtain favor from the Lord. And then Paul says in verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, and Paul goes on to say, which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. And we studied this before, this idea of straying, where you have an anchor and it holds you. And, and one of those anchors that holds you in the Christian world is a good conscience. If you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Right? Amen? And pure heart. Love from a pure heart. I, I've, I've, I can't say I've seen it all because that would be arrogant, but I've seen a lot in, in my time in the church. I love you, brother. And I am so frightened of those words. What, what are you going to do? What are you plotting? That you, that you have to tell me already kind of gets me a little bit because I just, I don't know you. And, you know, you love me, brother. <laughs> and they have ways of using that word brother. Brother? No one's ever heard it that way? I have. And I, and I look at him, and I can, I can just, I can read it. I just know that this is a manipulation, and you're, you're conniving and finagling some sort of angle in this. And, and as a shepherd, which is my job, and I got to look for wolves because I care for sheep. And every sheep is a potential wolf, and every wolf is a potential sheep. So I've got to be gentle. And I, and I have to endeavor 
and I, I work through it and I take them at face value, but I leave the realm in which they can create chaos very limited. And Brett makes sure of that too. I go, Brett, I think this person, I don't know, Rob, let's give him some time. You know, and, and we're not letting them out of that little bubble until we know because, and you start giving people some rain and some ability and all of a sudden you see lives start to get adversely affected. And it's this cancer that just starts to affect people's lives. And, and, and Paul's saying, I want you to look for folks that this idea that, that what they do, they do out of love from a pure heart. They have a good conscience. And it's from sincere faith that you just look at them and they just ooze a joy of the Lord. You, you, don't, you don't feel dirty after you've talked to them. You don't, you don't feel like they're trying to get something out of you. You just know that they're precious. And you, you, you can't, it's like um, Jim Mather. He's not here, I can talk about him. Jim Mather, Linda Mather. I love being around them. I'm never worried about them trying to take advantage of me, ever. I could say that about all of you here, but I don't want to because it make you feel embarrassed. This is a church that is blessed. This is a church that is blessed with this idea of sincere, pure hearts and good consciences. He says, but some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. What is idle talk? Idle talk is what manipulators do. And they just, they just sow a little bit over there. and they Drop a little bit over there. Fan the flame over here. Come back and do a little bit over there. Oh, that one needs to go out because people are getting wise to it. I'll just light it over here. And you're, what, what, why are they up? How come they're leaving? What do you mean they did? I don't, how, what? Who said that? Where'd that come? Ha! And this is, this is what you get. And it's a subtlety. La, 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 but. I love that but word. You know, they're really nice, per- they're really, they're very, they're a very nice person. And I love them so much. But, but disassociative conjunctive, just erase everything you said. Now tell me what you really think of them. Well, they're, you know, they're just idle talk. Idle talk is gossip and slander. Gossip and flattery. Gossip is what you'll say behind their back that you won't say to their face. Flattery is what you say to their face that you won't say behind their back. Slander is just plain going after them. Just talking junk about them. And that, that's what, and, and, and Paul's saying, Timothy, you got to be on guard for that. And, and this is something in the ministry, it's not a physically exhausting job, but it is mentally exhausting because you are trying to read every relationship and seeing how it's affecting the body itself. Because you're trying to shepherd, you're trying to care for the sheep. And you want to make sure that, that these, these flames of you know, idleness that are creating division and strife and not edification, you want, to, you want to put them out. He says, they've strayed and they've turned aside to idle talk. Strayed. Let me tell you how you know they've strayed. They're not in fellowship. They have no accountable relationships that they spend with anybody in the body of Christ. Uh, They like the benefits of the church, but they're not engaged. You don't see them serving. You don't see them connected. You don't see, but they're, they happen to be in every conversation, wherever it is. That's dangerous. And he's saying that to Timothy. He says, they desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither 
what they say nor the things which they affirm. Folks like that love to use justification of the scriptures for their behavior. Ever met anyone like that? They love to use scriptures for the justification of their behavior and they, they level the word on you. And, and all I can tell you is you feel no tenderness and no connection to them. And you wonder where they're coming from. And by the way, you want to talk about a millennial? As Paul is writing this to Timothy, Timothy's like, dude, I get it. I hate that. And what are, what are millennials like? They love transparency, self-deprecating preachers. Because what they're saying is, you're just like me. The people that they can't stand are the ones that carry themselves with an air of authority and they, they list all the people that they know and they go down the list of all the people they're connected with and they, you know, and they get in there and then the, that is exactly... Timothy's like, I, Paul, thank you. This is wise. You tracking it so far? Okay. They desire to be teachers of the law. You know why? Authority. It is cool to be in charge of somebody else because that makes me feel significant, right? Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners and for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, everyone say sound doctrine. You know what sound doctrine is? It's a whole counsel of God's word. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. The sound doctrine. We, we, the church is a, a mile wide and an inch deep. We got to teach doctrine. And that doctrine is the idea of church discipline. That doctrine is the idea of justification by faith. That doctrine is sanctification. That doctrine is the inerrancy of God's word. If we start to move away from the inerrancy of God's word and we go to higher criticism, we lose the foundation. We have no moral standard. We have no laws. Then the laws become subjective and anyone who's in power, position of authority uses those laws for selfish endeavors and starts to subject the people to ungodly behavior. And they justify themselves because they're in a position of authority. And they want to do it as much in the church as they want to do it in the civic arena. And our job is to protect that. And how do we do that? Why did we used to call public servants servants? Because they were servants. Where did we get that term? From the scriptures. And what's their job? They realize they don't create wealth, so they can't raid the treasury. And if they're in authority, then they can have all the treasury they want and keep putting it on the backs of the people. That is unscriptural. And God is commanding, look out for that. The law is good. It keeps us from folks who are perjurers and liars. It keeps us from murderers. It keeps us from the profane and the unholy and the murders of fathers and for sinners and insubordinate and the lawless, manslayers, sodomites. It's contrary to sound doctrine. And he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So I'm going to stop there tonight because it's 822 and I'm going to leave it with this idea. Paul immediately to a millennial lays out his relationship with him, talks about how he deals with the church, and then he lays out a civic approach. This is good government in Ephesus, Timothy. Apply it. This 
is the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. This gospel is effective in every realm of society. Now apply it, son. Go do it. And be careful of people that have authority, either in the family, if you have a father that exasperates his children, right? That family ain't going to last long, right? You have ungodly leadership in a church. It's either going to do one of two things. It'll be a cult or it'll end up imploding. One of the beautiful things about Calvary Chapel, teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, is that I educate you as God takes us through the scriptures so that if you see me failing, you find another church. And if I'm not abiding by what we're teaching, you need to go. That's the beauty of the scriptures because we're all accountable to them. That's why we put our hand on the Bible. We raise our right hand. That is the supreme authority. And Paul is saying, this is the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. The law is necessary. It is good. It's made for a righteous person. It's not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, excuse me, and the insubordinate. This, this scripture, this gospel, and Christ is a fulfillment of the law, is a defining factor for all civilization. Timothy, get a vision, buddy. Don't give up and throw your hands in the air. And don't quit. You know what? Timothy didn't live long. As we began the sermon with him being bloodied and beaten by pagans as he stood in opposition, it was a testimony of his life that transformed Western Europe as we know it. And so, that's where we're going. And we're going to continue through 1 Timothy and then into 2 Timothy. And we're going to apply it in this community. And we're going to watch what God does in the coming days. Six minutes. Any questions? Thoughts? Disagreements? Additions? Timotheus over here, you have anything? Timotheus Bond? <laughs> Your eyes are man. All right. Let's pray about this in the coming days. I really believe God's going to do something significant in our generation. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the time in your word. We thank you, God, for the clarity of your word. Lord, I thank you for Paul taking Timothy under his wing, a man who probably lost his wife, don't know if he had any kids, but to realize, Lord, you gave me a son in Timothy, not just a son, but a true son, not just a true son, but a true son in the faith. And all that is because of your grace and your mercy and your peace, which comes from you, Father, and from our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that Paul imparted to Timothy that he imparts to us today and these words that Timothy would carry with him even to his grave. And God, to see his life so moved with vision that he would transform the world as we know it. God, help us all together to encourage one another, old and young. Let us be Paul's and let us be Timothy's. Bless us, Lord. We pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your peace. We've all failed. But Lord, do a fresh work in our lifetime, please, God. Let us not lose lose vision. For lack of a vision, the people perish. Lord, give us a fresh vision of what it could be. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to that calling and not be discouraged, though Nero would burn our capital. 
Lord, let us realize that there are great things you want to do in and through your people. And good government is always by the hand of God. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.